Let me welcome you into week number two of this uh, series that we are calling The Voices of Christmas. Last week, we began uh, by hearing and enjoying some classic Christmas voices, some classic Christmas songs. We had a little fun with that. I thought it would be fun to do it again today. I don't know if we'll do this every Sunday, but at least again today. Three songs I'm going to play you. These are classic Christmas songs, and if you know the artist, I invite you just to... uh, Shout the artist's name out. Would you do it? Here's the first one. Now this one goes way back. Anybody know it? Shout it out. Who's the artist? The Andrews Sisters? No. The Lennon Sisters. You got it, Carolyn. It's the Lennon Sisters. That goes back to the mid-1950s. That's before my time. <laughs> but the Lennon sisters singing the white uh, winter, walking in a winter wonderland. Here's the next one. Do you know this one? Oh, man. Nat King Cole. Now, somebody said Johnny Mathis. I think Johnny Mathis did this one too, but that's Nat King Cole. That is called the Christmas song, and it is, isn't it? I mean, it is the, it is the quintessential Christmas song. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. What is this last one? Bean Crosby? You got it. Bean Crosby. What they call him? Old something. Maybe not. <laughs> That's one of those moments where y'all look at me like, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, well, he's before my time as well. But these, these, are, these are the classic Christmas songs. I have to tell you that uh, we had a discussion in our worship team meeting this past Monday, and all of the millennials, all the young guys on that team were like, hey, we need some, some newer songs. And I said, there are no classic Christmas songs that are newer. And uh, one of them, I won't say who suggested, well, sure there is. There's Mariah Carey, All I Want for Christmas is You. I said, that's not a classic Christmas song. <laughs> These are, these are the classic Christmas songs to be sure. Well, that's fun. That's fun. But let me ask you a question, a really an important question. It is, it is, do you remember the classic Christmas voices that we heard last Sunday? Not, not the songs we listened to, but the biblical Christmas voices that we heard. There were really two of them last week. Um, it was the voice of Zacharias, right, the father of John the Baptist, and then ultimately the voice of John the Baptist himself. We talked about the message of John. Uh, he came as that one preparing uh, the, the way of the Lord in the wilderness. We talked about the fact how that uh, he was to have been, that Elijah that would have preceded the Messiah had his message been received by the Jewish people. Uh, but he was the one, John was the one who told us that Jesus is worthy. I'm not worthy, he said, to unloose or unlace his shoes. He told us that Jesus promised to save us and that Jesus would transform our lives. And surely those things are true. And in fact, I was thinking about the voice of John as it compares to the voice of Bing Crosby or Nat King Cole or, or Burl Ives or any of the others that we might listen to. And this is the difference between the classic Christmas song, and the biblical Christmas truth. 
And it is that the, the, you know, the Santa Claus, the holly jolly Santa, roasting chestnuts over an open fire in a winter wonderland, that all fades when you look in the scriptures into the, it fades in the glory of Jesus. The glory of the Christ of Christmas. Because the truth is, and we all know this, it is that Jesus is the true Christmas gift. Jesus is the reason that we celebrate Christmas. And so today we're going to consider the second uh, voice of Christmas. We'll see it in both Matthew 1 and in Luke 1. It is the voice of the angel Gabriel. The voice of the angel Gabriel. By the way, uh, Gabriel was in last week's text as well. In Matthew chapter number one, uh, last week we, we saw uh, Gabriel as he talked about, uh, Luke one I should say, as he talked to Zacharias about the fact that he was going to have a son. And in Luke chapter one and verse number 19, this angel identifies himself as Gabriel. The angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. So today we're going to hear the voice of the angel Gabriel. Now, before we talk about Gabriel's voice or Gabriel's words specifically, let me begin by just talking briefly about angels in general. Um, Did you know that the Bible speaks about angels over 300 different times? The Bible tells us about the identity of angels and the activity of angels and the ministry of angels. The Bible has a lot to say to us about the angelic realm uh, or the the angelic world. And uh, and today, I want to dispel five common misconceptions about angels, okay? So I want to take just a minute at the beginning. I want to dispel five misconceptions and I want to give you five truths about angels, okay? We'll, We'll do this really, really quickly and then we'll jump into the text in Luke chapter number one. Here's the first misconception I want to dispel. Don't ever forget this. Angels are not former people. Angels are not former people. When people die, they don't become angels. Look at your neighbor, tell them, you ain't never gonna be no angel, all right? I mean, you know, sometimes your mama said, I want you to be a little angel, and, and that's nice, but you're not going to die one day, go to heaven, sprout wings, and become an angel, all right? Angels, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, they are ministering spirits. They are created beings by God who have a very specific ministry. They're not former people. You will never be one. Second misconception, every time a bell rings... An angel is not getting her wings, okay? Every, no matter what uh, they, they talked about in It's a Wonderful Life, bells ringing and angels' wings don't go together. In fact, that's the third misconception. We don't even know for sure that angels all have wings. They may not. I mean, maybe they do, maybe they don't. We don't know. We do know there is a particular class of angels, the seraphim, who have wings, but that doesn't mean that all the angels have wings. Fourth misconception is that angels are not chubby cherubs. Look at this picture. This is what many people think of when they think of angels. Angels are not chubby little cherubs or cupids with their bows and arrows. That's not what they look like. In fact, what you need to know is that not only are they not mighty or they're not chubby cherubs, they are mighty servants of God. 
I mean, in fact, when you read Luke chapter number one, it's apparent that they have a lot of power because when the angel Gabriel comes to Zacharias and says to him, your wife is going to have a son, his answer is, well, how do I know this is really true? And Gabriel takes a bit of offense at that and says, what do you mean? How do you know it's true? I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I've come to tell you that you're going to have a son. And because you disbelieve my word, you shall be mute until the child is born. And he was. For nine months, uh, Zechariah couldn't say a word. They have power, right? Uh, uh, what is it? Revelation chapter number 10 talks about a mighty angel that comes down from heaven with a rainbow at his head and he rides on the clouds and, and when he speaks, he speaks like a lion and he's so mighty and strong, he puts one foot on the sea and one foot on the earth. These angels are not chubby little, sweet little cherubs flying around. They are mighty servants of God. Those are five misconceptions. Let me give you five facts about angels. Number one, angels are divine messengers. Angels are divine messengers, uh, as is the case in Luke chapter 1 and in Matthew chapter number 1. As we'll see, Gabriel arrives both to Mary and Joseph with a, an important message from God. In fact, in both the Old Testament Hebrew and in the New Testament Greek, the words that are translated angel are both words that mean messenger. So when we say an angel is a divine messenger, that's the very definition of the word angel. And you might be uh, aware that the Bible has given to us in the New Testament a great commission, right? The great commission is that we are to go into all the world and we are to preach the gospel and make disciples, that we are to proclaim the good news. And Jesus said, you shall go and speak for me. We are to be evangelistic. And interestingly, when the Bible talks about preaching or going to tell, that we are to go and tell the message of Jesus, it uses a Greek word, uh, which is euangelizo. Euangelizo. And in the middle of that word, angel, is the word angel. In fact, when you think about evangelism or being evangelistic or saying we've planted 27 evangelical churches in 27 villages in Honduras or Brookstone is an evangelical church, every time we use the word evangelist or evangelize or evangelism or evangelical, in the middle of that word, have you ever noticed, is the word, here it is, look at it, is the word angel. In the middle of the word. So when we are being evangelistic, we are carrying the message of the gospel. We are being angel-like or we are being a messenger. I was thinking about the guy who preached the night that Jimmy Dykes got saved. When I was 16 years old, there was a pastor named Steve Smith. He still pastors the same church in the western part of our county even until today. And he stood in that same pulpit where he stands today. He stood there over 40 years ago, or almost 40 years ago. And he, he was like an angel to me because he told me, he delivered the message of Jesus. And it changed my life forever. It's what angels do. They deliver divine messages. Secondly, angels fight battles. Angels are warriors Revelation 12 talks about Michael and his angels fighting a war in heaven. Number three, angels guard the saints. And some drivers in the room said, amen. 
praise the Lord. They are guardian angels. You wear them out sometimes. Psalm 91 says he will give his angels charge over you. They will lift you up lest you would dash your foot against a stone. They do. They guard the saints. Number four, angels are engaged in human affairs. If you think the angelic realm never mixes with the earthly realm, you're wrong. Angels are involved in human affairs. In the book of Daniel, Scripture talks about uh, an angel, uh, the angel Michael, uh, and perhaps even Daniel, fighting with a demonic angel called the prince of Persia. They, do, they are engaged in the affairs of mankind. Hebrews 13.2 says to us, we should be careful. We should be sure that we are kind to strangers because some people have entertained angels without being aware of it. So they are involved in human affairs. And then number five, angels will be our eternal companions. That is that they will be uh, in heaven with us forever and in the kingdom of God with us uh, forever. Revelation 4 and 5 makes that clear. So angels, uh, some misconceptions and then some things that are true about angels in general. Well, I want to read the text to you today and, and speak to you about Gabriel specifically and his word uh, to Mary and to Joseph. We're going to begin in Luke. So look with me in Luke chapter 1 and verse number 26. Luke 1, 26. The Bible says, And in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin who was espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and wondered in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you shall conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and he shall be called the son of the highest and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then Mary asked the most logical question she could ask. How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? I'm a virgin. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, or the Holy Spirit shall come upon thee. The power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which is born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren for with God nothing shall be impossible. Now by the way I might just encourage you with that statement and I don't want to misapply it but I want to affirm the reality of it. What are you facing in your life? What are the struggles that you're contending with? What are the things that you're fearful about? What are the things that you're uncertain about how they're going to work out? How are things going to go for you? I don't know. Here's what I do know. Whatever it is with God nothing is impossible. Amen. Be encouraged by that, for with God nothing shall be impossible. And then Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. Now go over to Matthew chapter 1, please, and look at verse 18. 
Matthew 1.18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was like this, or was on this wise. When, as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away, or that is to call off their marriage privily or discreetly. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, now Gabriel's not named in this passage, but we certainly believe that this is Gabriel, referred to as the angel of the Lord in more than one place in Scripture. The angel of the Lord, Gabriel, appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost." And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken uh, of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which, is, uh, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, took unto him Mary his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, it's interesting to me that uh, in both of these passages, Gabriel is very specific in his instruction to Mary in the first case in Luke, and then uh, Joseph in the Gospel of Matthew, very specific to tell them both to name the child that is to be born, to give the child the name Jesus. And we'll talk in just a few minutes about why that is significant, that his name is to be given as the name Jesus. But what I want you to know is that not only do they say, name him Jesus, but then they both, both Matthew and Luke, as well as uh, John and Mark, all four gospel writers, then go on to identify Jesus, this child who's to be named Jesus, to identify him as the Christ. You see this in Matthew 1 and verse number 18, where it says, now the birth of Jesus Christ. And it could be worded this way. Now the birth of Jesus, that's his name, Jesus, who is the Christ. That's the way you could read Matthew 1.18. Now, the birth of Jesus, who is the Christ, was like this. The name Jesus, uh, that's his name. Christ is his identification or his title. The word Christ means the anointed one, the promised one, the one who had been anticipated and who had been uh, sent to be the Messiah. The Gospel of John records this multiple times, but maybe one of the most notable places is in the beginning of the Gospel of John, chapter 1 and verse 41, where it speaks of Andrew and his word to his brother Simon Peter regarding Jesus when he says, he first found his own brother Simon and said unto him, we have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. So Andrew hears John the Baptist speaking, sees John identify Jesus as the Savior, then runs with that information to his brother Simon and says, we found him, not John, we found Jesus, who is the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. 
Uh, In a week or so, we will read in Luke chapter number 2, where the Bible says that on the night of his birth, uh, this word was given in Luke 2.11. The angel said, for unto you is born this day, speaking of the birth of Jesus, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is, or who is, Christ the Lord. And then, of course, in Mark chapter 1 and verse 1, Mark begins his gospel by saying, in the beginning, or the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. Now, I take the time to make that point because here's, here's the emphasis. It is that every single one of the gospel writers, all of the evangelists in the New Testament said to us that the baby born in Bethlehem, the baby born of Mary, the baby who was given the name Jesus is in fact the Messiah, the Christ. He is the one for whom they had been looking. Gabriel came to Nazareth in Luke chapter 1 to give to Mary the most profound pronouncement, the most profound declaration that had ever been given, you will conceive and bring forth the Messiah. The message of Gabriel is that Christmas is coming, that Christ is conceived. And here we are 2,000 years later and we still celebrate the fact that this declaration could be made and that Christ has come. And so I want us today to consider the message of Gabriel the angel, what it is that he said to both um, Mary and to Joseph in these two passages. And one of the things I like about, uh, about uh, angels' words is that uh, you know, they're easily understood. Somebody said plain talk is easily understood. The book of Hebrews says that the word of angels is certain. You can take it to the bank. You can count on it. It's a sure word. And when Gabriel speaks to Mary and to Joseph, there's no ambiguity in what he says. He's not a, a vague messenger. He's not an uncertain messenger. He gives them Three joyous declarations. Write the first one down. Here's what he says to Mary and to Joseph. In Christ, in Christ, God resides with us. In Christ, God has taken up his residence with us. We might say that he abides with us or he dwells with us. Someone might say he pitched his tent with us. And this is important because... The fact of the human condition is separation from God. I want to say this again. I want you to let it settle in your heart. Know that it's true for every person outside of Christ, from your nice little next-door neighbor to the person in some foreign country who has never heard the name of Jesus, for every person outside of of the grace of God or outside of the church of Jesus Christ, I should say to you that The human condition is separation. It is separation from God. This is made clear in the scriptures all the way back in the beginning when Adam and Eve rebelled against God's command and sinned. And and Genesis chapter 4 verse number 23 and 24 says, because of their sin, God sent them forth. If you go read that passage sometime, you can see in Adam and Eve, heads bowed low, heavy shoulders bent over with the burden 
of sin, walking in the grace of God's goodness, allowing them to continue to live, covering them with animal skins, but walking out of the garden that God had made for them, walking away from the presence of God. And it is, it is not only the origin of our separation from God, it is emblematic, it's symbolic of the fact that all of us are separate. It is our human condition. The Bible says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of our sin is death. And it doesn't mean death on a, you know, in a casket. It means separation from God. And we're all sinners. And so the result of our sin is that we have been separated from God. And the truth is, some of you perhaps are here today and you are working furiously to remedy that separation. You're trying your best. You're doing all that you can to remedy your separation from God. If I can just be good enough, I can get a little bit closer to God, right? If I, if I just go to church enough, then I'm inching my way. If I, can, if I can just be a more moral person, then I'm getting closer to him. The fact is, we know that this doesn't work. Even if it did, even if it could get us a little closer to God, we are so broken that the very next moment we would slip back and we would be separate from God again. So our remedies that we would seek to try to bring to solve the problem of our separation from God will never work. Only God can solve the problem. Only God can bridge the great divide and dwell with us. And this is the message of Gabriel. That in the birth of Jesus, God has made that possible. You still have your Bible open to Matthew chapter 1. Listen to Gabriel's word in verse number 20. Speaking to Joseph, he says in verse number 20, but while he thought on these things, that is while Joseph was contemplating what to do, the angel came to him and said, Joseph, thou son of David, do not fear to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. Now, this is the news of God's residing with us. It is the fact that God has done the only thing that could be done in order to once again be reconciled with man, for the separation to be gone and the reconciliation to occur. The only way that that would be possible, because we can never work our way to him, is that he must come to us. And the only way for this great and exalted God who is unknowable to us, the only way for him to come and be in fellowship with us again would be for him to, well, for him to become what we are, right? To become a man. And so when he says that which is conceived in her, that human being conceived in her, that embryo in her womb, that child, that little man growing in her, that person was conceived by the Holy Ghost. That person is God incarnate. It is God coming near or God solving the problem of separation. It is God in Christ residing to us, uh, residing with us. This is the, the thing that, that the angel uh, explained to Mary over in Luke chapter number one. Look there, Luke one and verse number 34. After saying to Mary that you're going to have this child, the Son of God, the, the, uh, the, the one who will be called Jesus, then Mary asks the question in verse 34, how shall this be? Now, it's not a rebellious question. It's not a doubting question. It's a, it's a genuine question. How can I have a child? I'm a virgin. 
This is a biological impossibility. How is it, how is it possible that I can deliver a child? And so the angel Gabriel describes what is going to happen. Verse number 35, the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon you, overtake you. The power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Not the son of Joseph, not the son of some other man. He will be the Son of God because he is conceived by the Holy Spirit. When he says to her in verse number 35, the Holy Spirit shall overtake you or come upon you and the power of the highest shall overshadow you. This word, overshadow, is an interesting word. I mean, I want you to imagine this for a minute. Sometimes we read the scriptures and we don't really put ourselves in the, you know, in the, in the skin and the flesh of the people who are engaged in, in, these, in these truths. Mary is told by the angel, so Mary, here's what's going to happen. The, the power of God is going to overshadow you. The word overshadow carries with it the idea of a visible, a visible cloud. Um, oftentimes in the scriptures, the, the powerful presence of God is seen visibly. In the book of Exodus uh, when God led the children of Israel out of Egypt and they were led through the wilderness, how did God lead them uh, during the daytime? With a pillar of a cloud, a visible cloud. Second Chronicles 5 says that when the Spirit of God or the presence of God filled the temple when Solomon built it, that there was a visible, actual cloud in the temple, it said the glory of the Lord filled the house of God so that the priests couldn't even see their way through. They were enveloped in this cloud. And there's an interesting passage in the New Testament in the book of Luke, uh, chapter 9. We won't turn now for the sake of time, but in Luke chapter 9, um, you read about the transfiguration of Jesus. Now, many of you know about the transfiguration where Peter, James, and John are up on top of the mountain with Jesus and they wake up from a sleep and they see Jesus in all of his glory and he's talking to Moses and Elijah. And, and Peter in that passage says what sounded like a good idea at the time, but it, when it left his mouth, it realized it was a stupid thing to say. Has that ever happened to you, by the way? In here it sounds so wise and then you say it and you go, oh, that was really dumb. That's exactly what Peter did. He said, Lord, it's so good to be here. You, Moses, and Elijah, let's build three temples and, and we'll stay here forever. And the Bible says in Luke chapter 9 that when that happened, the power of God showed up and enveloped them in a cloud. That literally they were afraid as the cloud covered them. Gabriel says to Mary, here's what's going to happen. The power of God is going to come. The, the Holy Spirit will overtake you. And the power of God will envelop you. I, I just believe that it was a visible cloud, a moment when Mary was enveloped in the cloud of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit overshadowing her. And in that moment, Christ was conceived. And it is for that reason that the Bible can say in verse number 34 that a virgin would conceive, being enveloped by the power of God, and would give birth to the Messiah because with God nothing shall be impossible. Gabriel explains it to Mary how that God is going to come and reside with us 
by overtaking her life and Christ will be conceived in her. And then back in Matthew chapter number 1, verses 22 and 23, then Gabriel assures Joseph that this child born of her would be called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And this is why I said a few minutes ago that the announcement of Gabriel, that the Messiah, that Christ had been conceived, is the greatest news of all time. It is because God in this moment kept his promise to come to us because we could never come to him. What is the good news of Gabriel's message? It is that in Christ, God resides with us. Secondly, it is that in Christ, God redeems us. I'll just mention this briefly to you. I I mentioned earlier that Gabriel gave explicit instructions both to Mary and to Joseph that the baby that was to be born was to be called Jesus. You shall call him Jesus. Now, the, the name Jesus is the, the, the Greek, or Jesus, is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew, the Old Testament name Yeshua or Yeshua. Oftentimes you'll hear uh, Messianic believers speak of Jesus uh, by that name, Yeshua or Yeshua. It's the, it's the Hebrew word uh, for Joshua. So the, the, the Old Testament uh, figure, Moses' um, uh, general who took his place when Moses died, was named Joshua. Same name, Yeshua. The name means Jehovah is salvation or uh, Savior. So in Matthew 21, Gabriel says to Joseph, you shall call his name uh, uh, Jesus or Jesus, you shall call his name Yeshua because he shall save his people from their sins. The name means Savior. And you shall call him by his name. He will be the Savior. Now, how is it that he would save his people from their sins? How could that even be possible? Well, perhaps Joseph would have clued in on it. Perhaps Mary, certainly uh, at the time of Jesus' birth, she did. Maybe even in this moment of the conception of Jesus, she was aware of it. But the only way that he could save his people from their sins was by the sacrifice of his own life. But the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins, right? Isaiah says it this way, Isaiah 53 and verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. How could this one conceived in the virgin's womb, this God with us, Emmanuel, God bridging the gap and residing with us, how could he then take away our sins only by this divine one, not only becoming a man, but then bearing our sin for us. Our sin was laid upon him. Now Matthew one twenty one says, call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. Brings up the question, doesn't it? Who are his people? If, if, if he's going to save his people from their sins, I want to be among his people, right? I don't want to be among those who are not his people. I want to be saved So what does it mean to be his people? Well, make a note. For the sake of time, I won't turn. You can go later and read it. But make a note of 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, where the Bible talks about those who are believers, right? And those who believe in Jesus are called his people. Uh, In in the Gospel of John chapter 1, it says he came to his own. His own what? His own who? His own people. 
He came to his own, and his own would not, did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Who did he come to save? He came to save believers. Those of us who will trust in Christ, who will acknowledge our sins and our need of a Savior and call out to him. This is the message of Gabriel, that in Christ, God resides with us. And in Christ, God redeems us. And then thirdly, and lastly, in Christ, God reigns forever. In Christ, God reigns forever. Let me read to you again Luke chapter 1 and verse number 31, 32, 33. Verse 31 says, And behold, you shall conceive in your womb, bring forth a son, call his name Jesus. Here's the description of this one you will bear, Mary. He shall be great. He shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. If you're a note taker, it might be wise for you in verses 32 and 33 to circle the words son of God. And you could circle, the or son of the highest, you could circle the word throne, the throne of his father David. You could circle the word, he shall reign. Uh, You could circle the word in verse 33, his kingdom. It's clear, isn't it? That Gabriel says to Mary, the child that you will bear will not only be God dwelling with us, who will redeem us from our sins, but then he is a king He will reign and have a kingdom and sit upon a throne which will never be overthrown and which will last, his kingdom will last forever. He's not only to be the savior of all who would believe, but the coming king of the earth. And I would just just encourage you in something today. It is that in the gospel of Matthew, when Gabriel says to Matthew, you shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins and these things are done so that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet. And then he quotes in Matthew, he quotes Isaiah 7, 14. For behold, a virgin shall conceive in her womb and bring forth a son. The prophet said it would happen and it happened. If Matthew chapter 1, Gabriel's word to Joseph, is a promise that God was fulfilling the promise made by Isaiah that Christ would be born from a virgin's womb, then we can know for sure that when the promise of Luke 1 is made that he shall be great, he shall be the son of God, he shall sit upon the throne of his father David, of his kingdom there shall be no end, he shall reign then we can know that that promise of his kingdom will be fulfilled as well. And that those promises were made by multiple Old Testament prophets, perhaps most notably Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, which says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And he shall be called the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and of the extent of his reign, his kingdom, there shall be no Here's the point. Isaiah said that a virgin would conceive and bring forth a son. And Gabriel shows up in Nazareth to say, the time has come. Christ is coming. And Isaiah said a king would be born and the zeal of the Lord would perform this, that he would establish a kingdom which would be marked with peace and the whole earth would be full of his glory. And that day will 
come one day as well. And so if you want to have fellowship with God, no longer separation but reconciliation, and if you want to be His people, redeemed from your sins, and if you want to be in His kingdom, which will last forever, then the only way for that to happen is to believe that Jesus is the Savior. And in repentance and faith, turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus Christ. This would be the greatest Christmas gift you would ever receive.